six short stories from in front of and behind the scenes. We'll have acts one, two, and three in the first half, then an intermission before returning with the infamous Lies League book quiz. And three more terribly theatrical productions. Our actors and actresses are, of course, very highly strong. Possibly because somebody ignored the advice not to put their daughters on the stage. Or maybe because we don't ply them with drink until after they've performed. Be that as it may, please don't send them into screaming tantrum mode by failing to silence your mobile phones. You wouldn't like them when they're deaverish. And so, on with the show. Act one, scene one, will be One Beautiful Day by Elizabeth Stott, be read by Carrie Cohen. Elizabeth started her career as a scientist in industry before turning to writing in midlife. Her short stories and poems have appeared in various magazines and anthologies, and as a short story collection, Familiar Possessions. She's working on a further collection of stories and a novel. Carrie's recent theatre includes Mrs. Tarleton in Shaw's Miss Alliance, Hetty in Gelt, and the family in Hula Hoops Where My Downfall. Film includes Grace in Mouthplay, scheduled to shoot in January. Which January? It's just been done. That January just gone, <laughs> that one. <laughs> TV includes Hilda in Dara O'Brien's In Case You Missed It. Carrie! One Beautiful Day by Elizabeth Stott. The sorters arrive as the November evening engulfs the provincial town. They park outside the Victorian Civic Hall as instructed by the secretary of the local music society. The Gothic ornament of the exterior, dark streaked by pollution, is just as the sorters expect for they have seen many such venues in their years of touring the provinces. The brief period when their names appeared at Covent Garden still warms their hearts. At least it warms Mr. Salter's heart. He's often heard reminiscing about his Toreador, a part he took temporarily when the incumbent Escamillo had shingles. What would these provincial folk know anyway? Something from Madame Butterfly always goes down well, and they have costumes, much repaired, dating back to their time in grander productions. They are pleased to note that the accompanist is a respectable pianist from the nearby cathedral. But René Sauter is not pleased that they are to be supported by a local soprano, a 20-year-old currently studying at the London School of Music on a scholarship. Aged 20, René Salter understudied Cho Cho San in a major production of Madame Butterfly and was 
widely regarded for her rich soprano voice, but her plain looks and pear-shaped silhouette did not equip her for the part of a glamorous heroine. And she had to resign herself to playing the parts of older women long before she became one herself. Maurice Sopter, a man of rather blocky build, was once ruddily handsome, but is now merely ruddy. <laughs> However, Maurice fails to acknowledge his faded glories in his dealings with younger women, often to his wife's public humiliation. The dressing room is dank and dim. But it is a designated dressing room and not a janitor's cupboard or a backstage toilet. Renee sits before the illuminated mirror to do her makeup. Half of the bulbs are broken and the glass is foxed. It seems an apt metaphor for the pair of them. Maurice takes a sweep from his pre-performance tipple. Renee dabs concealer around her tired eyes. They are to meet the mayor for a reception before the performance. Renee wears a once expensive gold evening gown cut low over her meagre bosom. The effect for the tiara and diamante necklace is of an antique perfume bottle. <laughs> well, she's mended the seams of the dress and of her husband's evening jacket more than once. She hopes the lighting will be subdued and that Maurice will not drink too much. Renee seldom partakes of more than diluted fruit juice before a performance and eats nothing. Renee has seen a picture of the young soprano. She is all a 20-year-old should be, lush skin with long glossy hair and a cleavage to get lost in. No doubt she can outmatch Renee in sheer lung power, but the local audience will not be capable of distinguishing Renee's technical superiority on the youngster's athletic gust. Moreover, she knows that Maurice will humiliate her again. On more than once she has considered leaving him, but the future for her alone, descending into retirement and old age, is more bleak than she can care to contemplate. But tonight, she will sing Chocho San's aria, One Beautiful Day. Chocho San, of course, was little more than a child when she married the faithless Pinkerton in the story, even younger than the young soprano. The mayor's party is a usual blend of provincial social gamesmanship lubricated with cheap wine and fortified by savoury nibbles served on paper plates. 
Maurice is soon up to his ruddy nose in alcohol and attempting to bury it in the well-exposed cleavage of the young soprano. A drove of punchy, middle-aged men snuffles around her like a herd of pigs at a trough. And the silly girl seems to be enjoying the flattery. Renee is surrounded by the polyester frock ladies of the assorted local musical societies and feels in her gold dress like a battered museum specimen of exotic butterfly accidentally placed amongst a common or garden. As usual, she eats nothing and drinks only mineral water forgetting the missed lunch in the misery of the gathering. Not even the elderly men of the parish try to flirt with her these days. She has passed from vague allure to vaguely invisible as she approaches 60. With this miserable thought, she fell. The consequence is that she's told by a retired doctor to have a lie down, whilst the inebriated Maurice gets to sing duets with the plush soprano young enough to be his granddaughter. In the dismal dressing room, she tries to make herself comfortable on a bony chaise and is given a cup of tea and some leftover nibbles by the pearl-buttoned woman assigned as her minder who readily abandons her on Renée's assurance that she will be perfectly fine. The tea is cold, and she has no appetite for the orange, furry cheese things or the miserly pretzels. She should cry, but tears elude her. In the stage mirror, her face is shadowed, but there's no hiding her age, nor indeed her plain looks. She would have gone into teaching had not Maurice convinced her that they were destined to bring opera to the provinces, and that one day they would have their own television show. She realises now that he'd been jealous of her accomplishment, not wanting her to outshine him, even as the plain, pear-shaped older woman. Her voice had sold the tickets. Through the door she hears blurts of sound, Maurice's rough bassoon and the bright flute of the girl. She imagines him in his shiny evening suit and the garish red bow tie he had insisted on wearing as an eager but aged cockerel in the company of a new hen. A jabbing piano sends darts of sound through her head. Taking her coat and evening bag, Grenet slips out of the back door of the hall into the drizzle of the street. She pauses at one of the posters. The photographs they used are old. It's a long time since they had professional ones taken. The girl's picture is clearly an amateur attempt, but she looks fresh and new, 
whereas she and Maurice are faded and outdated. Renee sees that they have missed one of the E's in her name. She's become Reem, <laughs> unaccented. Finds a high street full of youngsters doing the pubs and clubs. The young women dressed skimpily with no shoes or coats, wearing platform shoes, teetering like Japanese geisha in getter sandals. Renee attacks glances in her gold evening gown, which swirls out from beyond her everyday coat. Some of the men comment, but good-naturedly, they are not yet drunk. One of them recognises her from the coaster. The drizzle would have made her makeup run and her hair frizzy, but however, just being outside that grim hall and the burden of the lacklustre evening gives her energy. At the entrance to the pedestrianised high street is a memorial of some kind with steps leading to a modest monument with a canopy at top. She climbs to the plinth and takes a throat pastille from her bag and assesses the location. She does some vocal exercises, judging the acoustics of the place. The canopy acts to focus the sound, allowing her voice to soar over the noise of traffic into the confined shopping street. Raindrops catch the light like sparks, but it is a surprisingly mild night. A, a small audience gathers as she removes her coat. Renee welcomes them. She bows. She gives them some easy balance to warm up her vocal cords. The crowd claps in approval. Her audience grows. Renee delivers some Gilbert and Sullivan and some songs from the West End musicals. Her audience claps and cheers. Renee can see their hopeful faces uplifted full of anticipation. She moves on to Carmen's Abanera a song of the vicissitudes of love, a song she has become long inured to as far as any personal vicissitudes are concerned. By now, the rain has stopped. Even the background traffic noise seems muted. Her voice surrounds them like a cocoon. They are part of the song. She flirts with them and they respond, animated. A young man pulls a red rose from a bunch he has tucked into a supermarket carrier bag. René blows him a kiss. An encore is demanded. She bows, raises her finger to her lips and smiles demurely. She transforms before them from the defiant, flirtatious Carmen to the poignant Cho-Cho-San, anticipating 
the return of her husband in the area one beautiful day. The audience is stunned, then bursts into applause. She is received into the arms of the crowd who walk her back to the civic hall, buying her fish and chips on the way. By the time Marie staggers to the dressing room, his red bow tie crooked, his nose ruddier and shinier, his ears ringing to the shrill notes of the young soprano, Renée is sound asleep in her damp evening gown. She is clutching the broken stem of a rose and smiling. second story, which will be Proving Ground, by Sunny Tyke, be read by Gloria Sanders. Sunny grew up in Boston, has an engineering degree from the University of Pennsylvania, and works as an artist in the visual effects industry, blowing fake things up with fake explosives. Gloria's work includes audiobook narration for the RNID, and frequent collaborations with cabinets of curiosity. She's performed The Clock, a devised one-woman show, with Hide and Seek Theatre at the Broken Fringe, the Pleasant Islington, and the Ghent Art Scene Festival. She is also a liar, a fact we keep on forgetting to announce, because um, she's been a liar for a while. But anyway, Gloria! Grounds by Sunny Tyke. Nell grew up in the desert, and when she was 11 years old, when she had long limbs and impossibly blonde hair, and she was in the lobby of a casino pulling the lever of her mother's slot machine for luck, a talent agent noticed her. Her mother took his business card her lips a tight line framed in smudged lipstick. The man ran his fingers over the buttons on his suit jacket and said he had been having a drink in the bar and couldn't keep his eyes off Nell. She remembered feeling suddenly hot, for the first time aware of the tension of being ashamed and pleased in the same instance. Call him if you want to, her mother said later, leaving the card on the kitchen table when they got home. Knock yourself out, baby. For the rest of the afternoon, Nell gave the table a wide berth like she was avoiding a landmine. In the night, she lay awake, pressed down by the weight of wanting something too big. And in the morning, she took the card out to the driveway and lit it on fire with a magnifying glass. <laughs> now she was 17, and her hair had dulled, and her lips and her hips had widened. And she told this story of being noticed, 
to Kyle Walter as she sat in the cab of his Chevy pickup. She did not say how often she thought about what might have happened, how she studied herself in the bathroom mirror for hours. From certain angles, she found her face enthralling, but from others, it took on a heaviness, a foretelling of time and gravity. It was not seductive for a girl to mention regret, so she acted as though she barely thought of it at all. He was probably just some pedophile who bought a fancy suit at the thrift store, she said. Her upper thighs were sticking to the plastic seat and she tugged down her skirt. He could have been an agent. You look good enough. Could have been around because of some thing my dad was shooting. Kyle kept his eyes on the road. His father set up explosions for TV, sometimes even films, on the salt flats west of town. Kyle worked for him on the weekends. His nose was too large for his face to be considered genuinely handsome. But Kyle Walter was as Hollywood as Nye County got. He wore a bomber jacket and aviator sunglasses and had a tattoo sleeve, but he held the steering wheel with both hands. She had observed, too, in algebra that he never got the grades she did, but he always arranged his pencils very carefully on the left-hand side of the desk, close to the edge, but not too close. Every day, she would sit behind him and watch him do this, always with the sense that she was waiting for one of them to fall. His truck sailed along the empty road, kicking up dust on either side. How much farther, where, where do we have to do it? She asked. It has to be sheltered. It can't be windy, he said. The horizon stretched out before them, an unbroken line. Nothing but low bushes and licks of sand and unbearable heat. There was nothing out there. I guess just far enough away that my dad won't see the smoke after. It can drift really far. He would know what it was. A sheen of sweat had erupted on Kyle's upper lip. His fingers tightened on the wheel and the mortar pots in the back of the truck rattled. Mortar pots were used to control the direction of the blast. She uncrossed and recrossed her legs, leaned her head against the window and imagined what the explosion would be like. At school the day before, he'd been leaning on her locker, telling her how his dad just got back from Tunisia, where he had been working on a setup for a James Bond film. The biggest one that's ever been done. His voice dropped to an artificially masculine level whenever he talked about explosions, and she was too young to find it ridiculous. <laughs> but when she said, oh, your dad has the coolest job, it seemed to agitate him. He grabbed the open locker door behind her with his right hand, pinned her in. Do you want to see one? His face was close and he was breathing with his mouth open, stale cigarettes and chewing gum. She felt her heart rate accelerate, nodded yes, she wanted to, and had felt nauseated ever since. She hadn't truly known how small her hopes were until Kyle Walter looked her right in the eye.
After a few more minutes, he stopped the truck abruptly. No shelter in sight, save a small, lone boulder that seemed to have been dropped from the sky. He got out of the truck and stood for a moment looking around, working his square jaw on the wad of gum in his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Here should be good. They began unloading the truck. Kyle let her carry the two sheets of corkboard, but would allow her to touch nothing else. Most of the rest of the contents were mysterious to her. There were some green containers that Kyle heaved off the flatbed, only the slight grimace on his face betraying their weight. There were bags of sand and concrete, and canisters of gasoline. Two heavy lead mortar pots, which looked like giant lenses with slightly different focal lengths. Kyle deposited all these things into a pile and stood looking over it. Yeah, here. Good. He said softly, not really to her, but as if he was reassuring himself. Hand me the shovel. He guided her out of the way, putting his hand on the soft flesh above the waistband of her jeans for a moment. Uh, what, what should I do? She was aware that she was blushing, aware of pushing her hair behind her ear, aware of every stupid, stilted movement that she made. He was already digging. Relax. Turn on the radio. The keys are in it. She went back to the cab of the truck and turned the keys. The tinny sound of top 40 hits became abstract as it bled into the afternoon heat. Then she arranged herself on the blanket lining the bed of the truck in the position of an attractive woman sunbathing, hands behind her head. <laughs> it was important that it look like her eyes were closed, that her only interest was in tanning, but behind her sunglasses, she watched him very carefully, willing her mind to film every detail so that she could play it back over and over for herself later in the darkness of her bedroom. He dug a shallow hole and plugged it with one of the mortar pots. He spent what seemed like hours winding masking tape around a small package of newspapers, sorting through wires in one of the green containers, placing things carefully in the pot and stepping back to survey what he had just done. When the mortar pot was full, he started breaking apart one of the sheets of corkboard, kicking it through with the heel of his motorcycle boot, and then he arranged the pieces on top slowly, almost tenderly. When it was finished, he stood looking at the contents of the pot with his hands on his hips for an excessive amount of time, and she wondered if there was something wrong. If sometimes you had to arrange every last domino before you could see that you didn't want to push them over at all. Moved by an unexpected desperation, she rose from the bed of the truck and went to him. She stood very close, placing her hand on his arm. She was almost as tall as he was, so when she said, Is it ready? She breathed right on his ear. His sunglasses were dark. He stooped and picked up a spool of wire. The end of it snaked out of the pile of explosives. This is the fuse he said, placing the spool in her hands. He got in the cab, told her to get in the back, and then he inched the truck away. 
She held the handles on the side of the spool and it unwound unevenly, resisting until the force of being pulled overwhelmed it and it relented, jerking through a full turn. When they were a dozen yards back, Kyle stopped driving and emerged from the cab with one last green container which he placed on the bed of the truck. You scared? He was suddenly playful and he pulled her towards him by the feet. This is the debt box, he explained, busying himself with attaching the wire to a fuse inside the green box, which contained a console with several buttons and levers. He showed her the three buttons that needed to be pressed to detonate the explosion. Don't touch them, he said, suddenly sharp, as if in that moment her hand had been reaching up when in fact they both remained at her sides. No civilians. Sometimes, even the directors want to push the button, but Dad doesn't allow it. It isn't safe. Okay. Okay, he said. You should cover your ears. I'm going to do it now. Okay. Ready? The only answer was a slight echo carried back by a feeble gust of wind. Action! With one hand he held hers, and with the other he pushed the three buttons on the debt box. There was a long beat during which nothing happened, although afterwards she wondered if it was simply her anticipation, stretching out time. And then there was the moment in which everything happened at once. There was a bone-thumping crack, and a heat so sharp and short that the only experience of it could be relief that it was over. The flash of light was equally brief. Not fire, just an incredible release of power, blowing apart the sandbags and sending jagged fingers of dirt up into the air. The pieces of cork were the only things that caught fire. They were sent highest, burning and tumbling, raining down fragments that left the finest little smoke trails hanging behind them. It happened too fast, all in an instant. It was more than she had expected, and it was less. It was loud, she said, feeling inadequate. He released her hand. He looked smaller now like a disappointed child shrinking in on himself. They look bigger in slow motion. <laughs> I'll make one with gasoline this time. It's more dangerous. He sounded angry, and he was already walking away back to the mortar pot. Kyle, don't, don't be stupid, she said, but she didn't really try to stop him. This time he worked faster, not placing things as he had before, but tossing them in, moving on to the next thing carelessly. When he was finished, he crouched above the new setup he had made and fiddled with the wire for a few moments. She did not sit back in the truck bed. She stood and watched him with a growing pity. She too had grown up in the emptiness of the desert and knew what it meant to look out and find nothing looking back at you. Later, she could not 
exactly say why she had done it. But when Kyle stood and had only just begun jogging back, she reached down and pressed the buttons of the detonation box. One, two, three. story and the last one before the interval will be Portrait of the Artist as a Young Pig by Bernard O'Keefe who you read by Nicky Dis. Bernard studies English at Oxford and teaches at St Paul's School. He's been an editor of the English Review, was reviewed for the Literary Review in the Oxford Times and published his first novel No Regrets in 2013. Nicky is a co-founder of Open Book Theatre who perform three theatrical adaptions of classical literature in London's libraries. She's also a co-founder and artistic director of, of Thick as Thieves Theatre, who tour four-handed Shakespeare productions to regional theatres and rural touring schemes. Nikki! <laughs> Portrait of the Artist as a Young Pig by Bernard O'Keefe. Ruby had set herself two targets for her second term at university. The first was to get herself a starring role in a play, and the second was to get herself a boyfriend. The mistake she made was trying to do them both together. I've written a play, said Ollie one night in the Union Bar. Ruby, who had fancied Ollie from the moment she saw him on her first day at Bristol, greeted the news with a wide-eyed smile. Really? she said. What's it about? It's a satire. Oh yes, a satire of what? Of all kinds of things. Of <laughs> extremism. Of indoctrination. What's it called? It's called... Animal harm. <laughs> Ollie paused as if the title itself made further explanation unnecessary. I see, said Ruby. As in Animal Farm? Ollie nodded. There's an obvious Orwellian allusion, yes. <laughs> and is it about uh, animals? <laughs> On one level, yes. But at the level that matters, it's about a girl who becomes indoctrinated and brainwashed into a set of beliefs. Beliefs about... Uh, animals? <laughs> On one level, yes. <laughs> but the animal stuff is a metaphor. So it's really about fundamentalism. Religion. That's the harm in the title. I see said Ruby, lying again. This young girl, said Ollie, is immersed in a strange set of beliefs, and the beliefs in question are an extreme version of animal rights. 
This man is an extreme activist. He doesn't just believe animals have rights, he believes they are actually superior to humans. He believes that anyone who doesn't believe this is an enemy that needs to be punished. Uh, more than punished. Killed. Sounds fascinating, said Ruby, wondering whether she had drunk so much she'd started to hallucinate. And what he does is radicalise this girl. She had some idea of animal rights before she met him, but soon she is believing in it as some kind of cause, some kind of religion. She's completely transformed, and her transformation is shown in a really interesting way. You see, what happens is she actually turns into an animal on stage. <laughs> turns into an animal? Yeah. It's this really amazing moment where she has these strange convulsions and becomes a monkey. <laughs> a monkey? Yeah, how cool is that? And then guess what happens? Ruby thought it best not to take up the invitation and just sat open-mouthed with anticipation. This monkey, this animal, is so devoted to, to animalism that it's prepared to sacrifice itself for the cause. A sacrifice itself? You mean suicide bombing. The monkey becomes a suicide bomber. <laughs> the play ends with the monkey exiting with a bomb in its backpack, going off to destroy a fur shop. <laughs> wow. Exactly. Wow. So, it's a satire of of, well, everyone will think it's all to do with Islam, but in fact, it's much cleverer than that. <laughs> of course it is. It's about any set of extreme fundamentalist beliefs and about radicalisation. In this case, it's animal radicalisation. Animalisation, if you like. But it stands for all kinds. Wow! said Ruby. I'd love to read it. I'd love you to, said Ollie. I'd value your opinion. When Ruby read Animal Harm, she realised that telling Ollie what she thought of it would do little to move their relationship in the direction she wanted it to go. The play was truly dreadful. I think it's interesting, is what she said when it came to delivering the verdict. Interesting, said Ollie. Is that good or bad? Interesting is good, definitely good, and it's powerful, powerful and provocative. And the metaphor, the message, you think people will get it? Oh yes, said Ruby, I think people will get it. That's great, said Ollie, because I am definitely putting it on, and I have a favour to ask you. Ruby held her breath. Yes? I'd like you to play the girl, to play opposite me. <laughs> Ruby's heart jumped. Could she possibly do this? Could she perform in this totally shit play? <laughs> Could she really turn herself into a monkey in front of an, of an audience? Did she like Ollie enough to put herself through this? Would playing opposite him, being involved with him so closely for so many weeks, somehow compensate for the critical mauling the play would inevitably receive? Ruby looked into Ollie's eyes and smiled. 
I'd love to do it, she said. The first night of animal harm did not go well. It may have been nerves, it may have been Ruby's and Ollie's performances, it may have been the unreceptive and very sparse audience, or, and this was the conclusion Ruby could not avoid, it may have been because the play was crap. It was all talk and no action. The man sat opposite the girl, telling her at great length and in great detail exactly why animals were superior to humans. One scene, ludicrously, consisted of nothing other than the chanting of the Orwellian mantra, four legs good, two legs bad, repeated in different tones at different volumes for well over five minutes. (laughs) One moment in which significant action did happen on stage was when Ruby's character metamorphosed from girl to monkey. But the idea was so ridiculous and the low-rent monkey costume so unconvincing that Ruby wasn't sure the audience understood exactly what was supposed to have happened. Ruby was already looking forward to when the whole thing would be over. As for Ollie, if his confidence had been dented by the first night's low attendance and lukewarm reception, he hid it well. That's the problem with satire, he said. You either get it, or you don't. That the first night audience had clearly fallen into the, into the latter category was, he bravely insisted, their fault rather than anything to do with his writing. Tomorrow will be different, he said to Ruby, and the surprise was that he turned out to be right. On the second night, the hall was two-thirds f- full, and whereas the first night had been ca- characterised by uneasy silence, This one produced different noises altogether. Ruby thought she could hear hissing and tutting, and at the play's end, the smattering of polite applause was drowned out by boos. What was that all about? said Ruby as they stepped backstage. Why are they booing? I think, said Ollie, that some of them are beginning to get it. (laughs) Did you look at the ones who were booing? What do you mean? Ruby had been so worried about remembering her lines about vivisection and animal experimentation, so anxious to make her transformation into a monkey convincing, that it never occurred to her to look at those who were making her feel so uncomfortable. What about them? she said. They looked like they all might share a particular set of beliefs. The third night proved Ollie's suspicions correct. The hall was full, and the booing at the end was even louder. Oh, we're safe, she said to Ollie after the show. I mean, that was really awful. What's going to happen tomorrow? Ruby couldn't sleep that night, and she entered the final performance of Animal Harm in a state of high anxiety. Her fears were well-founded. Just as Ollie was in the middle of a lecture about endangered species and the horrors of the abattoir, Ruby sensed something happening in the audience. There were ripples and murmurs, and when Ruby dared to look out front, she was shocked. Was she imagining it, or was there a pig sitting in the second row, or at least someone with a pig's head? She turned back to look at Ollie, but when she glanced towards the audience again, she saw a cow sitting a few rows behind the pig. What was going on? Was the transformation which she herself would shortly simulate actually happening to members of the audience? (laughs) 
Ruby tried to concentrate on Ollie, who was now starting the four legs good, two legs bad scene, by repeating the words in a low chant reminiscent of transcendental meditation. Ruby joined in on cue, but as she did, she was conscious of other voices saying the same words. Another glance to the audience confirmed that this was the case. It also confirmed that those who were speaking were now standing up. They were all wearing animal masks, and they were moving towards the stage. Ruby looked in open-mouthed horror as a pig, a cow, a monkey, a dog, a sheep, a tiger, and an elephant with a huge trunk came closer. In a matter of seconds, they had surrounded Ruby and Ollie and started a chant of their own. This play offends the animal rights movement! It was not a particularly catchy chant, and it took the animals a few attempts before they hit a rhythm. But once they got going, they increased the volume and showed no signs of stopping. By the time they had hit on the punchier line, We stand up for animal rights! Ruby and Ollie had fled the stage in a fear of their safety. Fucking hell, screamed Ollie as they hid backstage. This is mental. Should we call the police? The police? They might do something. They might hurt us. We'll be fine. Are you sure? It's all okay. In fact, it's brilliant. What's brilliant about it? It's made a splash. It's been noticed. It's fucking scary! But think of the publicity. Ruby looked at Ollie. Was he being serious? Ollie? Yes. Are you really pleased about what's happened? Of course I am. But can't you see, Ruby? What I see is that you've managed to put me in this fucking ridiculous position by getting me to be in your play. I didn't force you. You wanted to. And because I've been in this unbelievably crap play... The words were out before Ruby could stop them. What do you mean, unbelievably crap? (laughs) Ruby paused, trying to stop herself saying what she really felt. She lost the struggle. Well, it's not actually very good, is it? What do you mean? (laughs) She couldn't stop herself now. It all poured out. The whole idea is just, I don't know, a bit silly. I mean, once you've got the idea that it's a metaphor, that it's satirical, it just gets really silly. Silly? You think my play is silly? (laughs) As soon as I read it, I thought, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't go anywhere near it. Oh, yeah? So why did you then? Because... Because I really like you. You like me, but you don't like my play. (laughs) In the silence that followed, they heard the chants of four legs good, two legs bad coming from the masked protesters. I'm sorry you feel that way about me, said Ollie. It's not about you, it's about the play. Whatever. But I'll tell you one thing. There are plenty of people out there who think differently. Who think differently about the play and who think differently about me. And do you know what? Right now I'd much rather be with them than here with... with you. Ollie walked off. Ruby called after him, but he didn't look back. 
and she stood by herself backstage, looking at the monkey costume she held in her hand and the suicide bomb rucksack lying on the floor. <laughs> Next term, she would set herself more sensible targets. <laughs> take an interval. Good luck finding the ice cream vendor and don't forget to sharpen those elbows for the scrum at the bar. As usual we start proceedings with the infamous Lysdeen book quiz. We have three books for you to win this time. Uh, yes, we certainly do. Uh, we've, we've tried tokenistically to make a stage or screen connection to these books. Uh, the first one is, uh, is a reprise uh, of Last Time Star Prize, which is Devil to Pay, the first novel from Ross Kemp. <laughs> TV's Grant Mitchell. Bex, can you remind me what your nine-word review of this was? Was it like Lee Child written by a monkey with a spoon? Yes. <laughs> there we go. Strong five stars, Amazon. <laughs> Uh, the second one, uh, and the really token connection here, is that Peter Carey has had novels turned into films. Um, he's also twice won the Booker Prize. Well done, Peter. Uh, this is his Illegal Self, which is, according to the Evening Standard, a wonderful novel which leaves you with a feeling of immense satisfaction. <laughs> How nice. Uh, and finally, straying a little bit from fiction into non-fiction, we have Nul Point which is Tim Moore's uh, study of the Eurovision Song Contest through only those bands and artists who ended up with the legendary score of Nulpoint. Uh, they they sing on their stage, it appears on the screen, it's one of the biggest uh, sort of entertainment events in Europe, so that is the connection there. If you want any of these, however, you have to be... Pretty damn clever. You, you do have to be, and you also have to attract our attention. As per usual, we can't really see you. In fact, even more so probably this time than normal. Um, so in addition to sticking your hand up, you're going to have to do a vocal call. Um, for this theme, it's going to be action. Action. Okay, let's, let's try that. So if you know the answer, only if you know the answer, hand up and yell action at the same time. Let's try it. One, two, three. Woo! Well done. Nice. I think they know what we're doing. A little bit Berlin 1939. Raise your left hand. Directly upwards, yes. <laughs> and so, question one. Shadow of the Vampire is a film based on the shooting of which film? Oh, yes, sir. Nosferatu. Oh, sorry. Sir. Sorry. I was totally what were you going to say? Oh, do we believe him? Yeah. 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 He's got an honest beard. I can't tell, actually. Yeah. He's probably not Which, uh... Willem Dafoe was in that Yes, he's seen it, he's seen it. Okay, which of these magnificent pieces of fiction? I picture? want the no Of course you do. Okay, well done, sir. Thank you very much. Question two. Who wrote the novel, The Phantom of the Opera? Action. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Gas 
cast on the room? It's got yeah! Oh, Peter Carey. Yes, the sensible choice. And so, as usual, the star prize is everything to play for. So, can, I, can I just say, Nick Kane is a man with nothing to lose and everything to prove. <laughs> now you want to read it. To win this book. <laughs> and Nick Kane will raise hell to get to the truth. <laughs> All you have to do is answer this question. With 25,000 performances, The Mousetrap is the longest running play in the world. Where is it currently playing? Oh. Uh, uh, Saint Martin's. Sorry. Uh, correct answer. Saint Martin's is the correct answer. Okay. Action. Well, well done. You got it right. That's the main thing. That's okay. Saint Martin's Theatre. Well done. It's the winning answer. It's all yours. You're welcome. Before we move on to stories, two very quick additions. The first is, we have a loyalty card. Um, these are a pot on the tables uh, of all around you. Uh, if you've ever bothered turning it over, you might notice that it says, come to four events, get the fifth one free. Uh, we will kindly stamp one of these on the way out if you didn't stamp it on the way in. Uh, so that's the first announcement. The second one is, at the front desk, there's also some of the Liars anthologies. Uh, Lovers Lies, Weird Lies, and London Lies, I think they're available this time. How much are we selling them for, Katie? A bargain, five pounds. So if you didn't win a book, either because you went quick enough, (laughs) even if you weren't quick enough, or not intelligent enough, or just unlucky, then Fiverr will get you a book. So there we go. Right. Shall we crack on with the show? Yeah. I'm glad that's the right answer. <laughs> the first story of the second half will be Wet Patch and the Wad by David Turnbull. Be read by Greg Page. David is a member of Clockhouse London Writers. His fiction has been published in a number of anthologies, including Beware the Little White Rabbit, We Can Improve You, Creeping Crawlers, and The Kitchen Sink Gothic. He's also a regular contributor to Sign Underverdon magazine. Age six, Greg Page was cast as Joseph in his infant school nativity. Somebody put a tea towel on his head, and he became someone else. He hasn't been himself since. He can be contacted via something that I'm not going to bother reading out, and has no idea what he's done with his keys. Greg! Wet Patch and the Wad by David Turnbull. Poor Wet Patch. When we were in year three at primary school, he went to the toilet and forgot to shake it. He came back into the classroom oblivious to the large and embarrassingly obvious wet patch that had formed on the front of his grey trousers. The name stuck. 
By the time we moved up to secondary school, no one ever referred to him as anything else other than wet patch. One day, when we were all about 13, we found him sticking a pink wad of chewing gum onto the red brick wall of the old outhouse at the back of the comprehensive. He was placing it carefully so that it joined with half a dozen or so other chewed up wads of pink and orange and grey. When we asked what he was up to, he announced that it was his intention to create the biggest wad of gum in the history of the world. We mocked him. It's going to take a bloody long time, I pointed out. Not if everyone chips in, he said. And that kind of set the ball rolling. It was as if he laid down a challenge. Soon, kids from all over the estate were lining up to add to the ever-growing mass of the wad's sticky circumference. Day by day, through the, ad through the addition of saliva-coated lumps of spearmint gum, juicy fruit, bazooka joe and hubba bubba, the wad grew incrementally fatter and wider. Someone said we should try for the Guinness Book of Records. That gave us greater motivation. We spent our pocket money on gum. We raided our parents' purses and wallets for money to buy more gum. Those with a penchant for the old five-finger shuffle shoplifted gum. Younger kids became the victims of bubblegum muggings. <laughs> Wet Patch was in his element. For once, he was the centre of attention for all the right reasons. One day, we turned up at the back of the outhouse to find that he'd built a set of curtains from old tent poles and some plastic sheeting. He'd also constructed a little stage from three planks of wood and a couple of upturned milk crates. Wet Patch clambered up onto the stage. We all stood with our arms folded, diligently chewing gum we'd brought as our tributes for the day. Ladies and gentlemen, announced Wet Patch, may I present for your delight and delectation the magnificent and awe-inspiring gigantic wad of gum. He pulled at a length of string and the plastic curtain fell open. There was the wad bigger and pinker than ever. It looked like a full moon in a hallowing sky, wetly gleaming, littered with craters and crevices. Step right up, said Wetpatch from the vantage point of his makeshift stage. Pay in gum and watch the wad as it grows and grows. It became a thing. Each day, Wetpatch would climb dramatically onto his stage and put on a show, throwing in ever more ambitious adjectives into his increasingly melodramatic introductions. One day the wad might be outstandingly astounding. The next it would be a miraculous magnificence. The day after, a feat of fantastical phantasmagoria. In turn... We chewed and stuck, and chewed and stuck, till our jaws ached. The bigger the wad became, the more palpable the sickly scent that hung in the air around it. 
The sugary aroma attracted bluebottles and wasps and huge hovering clouds of midges. They became trapped within its gummy pinkness. There were days when the wad looked like an aerial view of the Somme, trenches and foxholes littered with thousands of insect corpses. The wad consumed the husks and cadavers, assimilating them under oozing pink tendrils. Wetpatch decided we should bring it live offerings. We would kneel before the wad with a woodlouse or a ladybird held between our grubby index fingers and press our sacrifice to the wad before spitting gum from our mouths to increase the rubbery mass. The wad had expanded into an erratically sprawling disc, spread out in a ragged circumference that must have stretched a good three or four feet across the brick wall. When Wetpatch made his announcements and pulled back his plastic curtains, we knelt down before it as if we were Aztecs supplicating the sun god. One day, one kid got herself caught up in her undone shoelaces. As she tripped and fell, she scraped her hand on the uneven surface of the little tar path beneath the wall. The gash on her palm began to bleed. She wiped the blood onto the wad. Some said that at that point the wad began to quiver and twitch. Others swore blind they'd seen it throb and pulsate. The crimson streak of blood seeped into the spit-coated surface. Some said they heard the wad let out a satisfied burn. The next day, Wetpatch climbed up onto his stage and produced a safety pin. He held it aloft. Bubblegum or blood, he asked. We all chewed our gum and looked at him as if he'd gone mad. Bubblegum or blood, he asked again. Blood, replied someone at the back of the crowd. Blood, blood, blood. We all picked up the chant. Blood, blood. made his announcement and pulled back the curtain. The pink wad throbbed monstrously before us. The first kid stepped forward. Thumb, said Wetpatch. The kid held up his thumb. Wetpatch pricked it with a sharp point of the safety pin. Blood bubbled up on the thumb. The kid removed his gum from his mouth, smeared it with his blood and pressed it onto the wad. We all held up our thumbs. Blood! 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 We howled. Day by day, the wad grew fatter. Maybe it was just the heat of the sun that was causing it to swell. Maybe it became bloated on all the blood we freely gave. Maybe it became engorged on the flies that locked to it. Logic told us one thing. Superstition suggested the other. When Wetpatch made his announcement one lunchtime and pulled back the plastic curtain, the wad seemed somehow animated, squirming and writhing, as if trying to fill itself from the constraints of the wall. It's hungry, said someone. It needs to be fed, agreed Wetpatch, jumping down and examining it. 
blood, 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 we chanted. Feed the wad, feed the wad. And sugary saliva sloshed around in our mouths as we chewed our gum and waited for our thumbs to be pricked. Wet Patch raised his hand and motioned for silence. He climbed back up onto the makeshift stage. Ladies and gentlemen, he announced, the time has come for the grand finale. The scene is set for a stupendous end to the show. We all looked at each other. It was unheard of for Wet Patch to make a second announcement. What was he talking about anyway? How could the show be over when no one had called the Guinness Book of Records yet? Wet Patch jumped down again. Who remembers my real name? He said. Again, we all looked at each other. Dozens of blank faces stared back at him. I couldn't for the life of me remember him by any name other than Wet Patch. Wet Patch nodded his head sagely. It seemed to me that this was exactly the response he'd expected. And so, I take my leave, he said, and bowed to us all with a studied theatrical flourish. Everyone started chewing their gum a lot more slowly. Suddenly we were all feeling quite uncomfortable. This was not how it was supposed to go. By now, he should be busy pricking thumbs with his safety pin. Wet Patch spread his arms wide and stood there like Jesus on the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, he said, prepare yourselves for a spectacular climax. He took a step back. His school blazer became stuck to the pink pitted surface of the wad. There came the sound of kids spitting gum, kids swallowing gum, kids choking on gum. Wet Patch took another step back and pressed himself so far into the wad that you could see the indent of his body. Strands of gum crept like tiny fingers into his hair. Pink tentacles entwined themselves almost tenderly around his legs and arms. Did the wad fall from the ground? through the gravity of its own weight? Or did it fall around Wet Patch like some monstrously ravenous predator? Who knows? But fall it did. And Wet Patch fell with it, twitching and convulsing as it smothered his face, blowing huge pink bubbles as he expelled the last dregs of air in his lungs. His fall smashed the planks on the makeshift stage and brought the curtain frame clattering down. The momentary spell we were under broke with the shattering. In a chaotic frenzy, we pulled and clawed at the wad, yanking back stringy pink strands, curling our fingers into the gooey mass that encompassed his face, trying to clear a space to allow him to breathe, each of us almost overcome by the intense sugar rush of the syrupy stench that rose from the pulsing wad. But it was too late. Within those horrible, undulating strawberry folds, Wet Patch fell deathly still. Bubblegum had its blood. An ambulance was called. The medics were too late to revive him. 
I heard that they had to put him into the mortuary freezer so the gum would become brittle enough for them to chip it away <laughs> from his suffocated corpse. There was an investigation by the police. This was followed by an inquiry by the education authority. Both proved inconclusive. Death by misadventure was the coroner's verdict. The misadventure was ours. Wet Patch engineered it that way. I visited his grave often over the past 40 years. All the world is a stage, reads the fitting epitaph his parents had carved into the granite. I chew a piece of gum and stick the wad to the headstone. It's not disrespectful. It's an act of atonement. At least I come. At least I remember his name. working on his first novel, a literary, historical, slasher, movie mashup. He's also writing a series of short stories about characters undergoing transformation. In his day job, he designs video games and was design director on the BAFTA-winning Until Dawn for PS.4. I think that's PlayStation. Sarah trained at East 15. Theatre work includes All You Ever Needed, A Hard Day's Month, 26. Mole Flanders and The Winter's Tale. The film includes Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, Feeling Lucky, and More Than Words. TV includes The Real King Heron. Sarah! The Mad Scene by Tom Heaton. Lucy ran through the grey breeze block corridors. Where is Mr. Eldon? She asked everyone she met. In the green room they were watching football with the volume low. Is Mr. Eldon here? Two Tommies, one fat, one languorous and handsome, turned towards her with concerned faces. They shook their heads, shrugged with their mouths. He was here, said the handsome Tommy. The tannoy came alive. Mr. Eldon, this is your one minute call. Cutting it a bit fine, said the fat Tommy. Lucy found Mr. Eldon inside the toilet cubicle, slumped against the door. She had to reach in and push his body back. I'm all right, he said slowly. It didn't sound like him. You feeling okay? He staggered to his feet and opened the door. The button on his khaki trousers was undone. I'm due on stage. The words slushed together. Are you drunk? She said. He was tall but stooped. His grey hair was slicked back, ruffled, scraped across his sweating head. His jaw was twisted. His mouth sucked in. Thick and round at one end, thin at the other, the shape of a silverfish. 
He watched her with a queasy, limp eye. Drunk? No. God, I don't... He stared about him. The Tommies crossed at the end of the corridor. Mr. Eldon to stage immediately, said the Tannoy. Which theatre? Mr. Eldon asked. The Lyric, Lucy said. He drew himself up to a full height. Am I on? Take me, please. His voice seemed to come from far away. He was like a child asking for a sweet. There isn't much of... He didn't smell of drink. Lucy buttoned his trousers. She took his arm and led him between the grey breeze blocks. We're at Act 4, Scene 6. Will you be all right? Of course, he said. The door to the stage was covered with heavy black felt to deaden the noise of it opening and closing. A sign said, Stage Silence. The running order was written on a sheet of paper gaffer taped to the wall. Beyond this door, the theatre changed. First there was the dark cubbyhole of the stage manager's desk. Then the cavernous stage with bare breeze block walls. The set swaddled in black drapes. Then the old auditorium, a Victorian original. All plaster curls and bulges and plush red velvet. A Rococo palace, transported to a breeze block cave. Then the audience, rapt faces reflecting the light. The whole effect, a sudden and brilliant transformation. A magic trick of architecture and theatre. A world within a world. It was another type of transformation that Lucy wanted to bring about by passing through the black felt door. If she could get Mr Eldon into the wings, his frame might bend and fold itself into the rehearsed shape. His head might tilt as the brigadier's cane was thrust into his hand. He might step boldly onto the stage, his body possessed of a strange energy. That of a man who has lost all worldly and precious things, yet is in the process of finding a new truth. An old man become vibrant and raucous. The door opened and the stage manager came through. A round woman dressed in black, her hair tied up in a knot. She had a pen tucked behind her ear. He's on, she said, right now. Over the stage relay, a voice said, but who comes here? A pause stretched into a gaping silence, a concentrated expectation. The stage manager peered at Mr. Eldon. What's the matter with him? I don't think he's drunk, said Lucy. The stage manager turned to the handsome Tommy, who had poked his head around the black door. Mr. Smith, would you go to the production office and call an ambulance? Tell them one of our actors may be having a stroke. Her tone was high and even. Her eyebrows were raised. She blew air through lips drawn into a pinched circle. 
Stay with him, Lucy, she said. I'm going to cancel the show. Lucy fetched a chair from one of the dressing rooms and helped Mr. Eldon to sit. Who are you? he asked. The assistant stage manager. Oh, that's right. It was almost melodic. A high lilt. A drop. Over the relay, they heard the stage manager explain to the audience that due to unforeseen circumstances, the indisposition of an actor, it would not be possible to continue with the evening's performance. There was a muffled swell of speech, voices rising together, a communal and almost coordinated sigh of disappointment, which held its shape for a moment before breaking into a hubbub of chatter and complaint. A crowd of actors had gathered. Get away, Lucy said. He needs air. Give him some air. They clucked back to their dressing rooms. What's the play? Mr. Eldon asked. Lucy leaned in towards him. King Lear. And I? Lear. Why am I dressed like this? It's set in World War One. What's up the up, he said. Lucy put her hands between her legs, clamped them with her knees and rubbed them together slowly. There'll be people here soon. Where are we up to? The mad scene, she said. Four, six. It doesn't matter now. He looked at the breeze block wall opposite. Have I played it before? Often, she said, and she rubbed her hands again. You're famous for it. After a moment, Mr. Eldon started. When we are born, we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. His voice was more like his own now, or rather, the voice he had found for this part. He ran the lines under his breath and stood up. Watch him there, said the fat Tommy. But Mr. Eldon pushed through the black felt door and limped onto stage, still running his lines, looking into the bright auditorium, where ushers bent along empty rows, picking up discarded ice cream cartons, torn tickets, forgotten programmes. Come back, please, said Lucy. Mr. Eldon seemed confused. He looked at the empty seats, at the ushers in plum waistcoats. He started to speak, but his jaw clamped shut. He shambled centre stage, out of place, an old man in fancy dress, like an escapee from a nursing home. He glared at the set, at a lonely dying tree, leafless and gnarled, its branches blasted away. The rake of the stage was difficult for him, so he sat, his legs bent like a grasshopper's. It were a delicate stratagem to shew a true perforce with felt. I'll put it in proof, and when I have stolen upon these sons-in-law. The words came out distant and weak, 
the jumble of syllables, his memory serving up the lines without inflection or gesture. Some members of the audience were last to leave, those who had forgotten umbrellas or were too long putting on coats, turned back, thinking that the performance was not over. They bunched in the stall's entrance and watched. Lucy sat beside Mr. Eldon. She put her hand on his back. You can stop, she said. He leaned forward like a drunk. His eyes rolled in his head. He wagged his finger, beating out a tempo. Then kill, 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 kill. The black felt door opened. Mr. Eldon turned to Lucy. Your line. <laughs> the stage manager shouted. Here he is. The fat Tommy in the wings spoke. Sir, your most dear daughter. Mr. Eldon stared at Lucy as if she were a strange creature. I am even the natural fool of fortune. Boots marched towards them. Voices cried out. Thin, weak voices that were eaten by the air of the stage. Hello there. Is this him? A man and a woman in leafy green jumpsuits with yellow high-vis patches. They carried rucksacks. Shiny green with glittering crosses. Mr. Eldon spun round. Let me have surgeons. I am cut to the brains. Perhaps Lucy told it differently, that last speech, later when she recounted the story broadened the differences with each telling, altered details to suit the listener. Perhaps she painted in some pauses, hunched the old king up a little, made his voice crackle with a hidden knowledge. To claim that it was perfect would have been a straightforward lie, but the tale told better if the performance unearthed subtleties, some truths that Richard Eldon never found in the part before. Grainy truths, maybe, opaque meanings, but still something to grasp onto, as if, under attack, the brain had found a new interpretation. The truths of the play being not absolute, but freshly minted from those circumstances, and the old actor, finding his way instinctively through it, able to interpret again, after a lifetime on stage, some small clarity in his voice some authority. Leah reimagined in the dying of brain cells, in the starvation of oxygen and glucose. And perhaps Lucy needed it to be this way as well. Needed the black felt door to retain its magic, its power to transform. Sarah. For our final story of the evening, some notices. The Liars have been nominated for the Saboteur Award for Best Spoken Word Regular Night, which is wonderful. <laughs>
And thank you to everyone who nominated us. But it's not enough. Please vote again for us to win. And then get your friends, family, and complete strangers to do the same. Details in the program notes or via the Lies email or on our webpage as you see fit. Our next live event is Planes, Trains and Automobiles on the 14th of June here at the Phoenix. <coughs> Get here any way you can. <laughs> Our next open theme is July's Genius and Madness. Details for submitting to this, along with the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings from previous events, are all on the Liars website. And so, our final story of the evening. We Trutch, or Chekhov's Woman, by Dan Timms, and we read by Nicholas Davari. Dan has an MA in Creative Writing from the University of East Anglia, where he won the Curtis Brown Prize for the year's top student, the Malcolm Bradbury Memorial Scholarship, and was shortlisted for the David Higgum Award. <coughs> Nicholas trained at Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. Since leaving, he's toured Austria with Vienna's English Theatre, performed in All's Well That Ends Well and Anne Boleyn at Shakespeare's Globe, played Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet by Theatre Sofje Bocce, understudied the National Theatre's production of A Small Family Business, and played Ferdinand Antonio in The Tempest at the Southwark Playhouse. Nicholas! Trutch, or Chekhov's Woman, by Dan Timms. A grainy scene. CCTV it could be. Is. The telltale time in the corner. 11.17pm. A woman crosses the screen. Moves down a deserted alleyway. It's late and she's alone. We switch to stalker point of view. The woman's heels clip along the road. Slow. Halt. She half turns. Is it possible someone's following her? Close up we see her face in three-quarter profile. She's young and pretty, obviously. Blonde, brunette. Um, she wears her worried expression well, biting her plump lower lip, a pucker in her brow. She starts to walk again. Faster now. In stalker view, we advance on her quietly, quickly. At the last, she turns, startles, screams. She tries to run, but we have her now. We stifle her cries and kill her in a way that is almost certainly sexually motivated. Trutch! Trutch stirs. He's sitting at his desk, but it's been miles away, thinking about the past. We're not yet sure what his past is, but there's no question he has plenty of it, and thinking about it makes him sad. Trutch! The voice is that of his boss, DCI Beak, looking worried in her office. No one knows what Beak's first name is. No one dares to ask. We don't know much about her private life because she never, ever lets it get in the way of the job. <laughs> but we do know that she has a husband, who the team call the Icicle, because DCI Beak is so cold that if you ever stuck your dick in her, it would surely freeze. We also know that Beak has no children, which could potentially become a thing, but which is purely practical for the moment. 
the last thing we need is for her having to uh, knock off early to go to penalty or whatever. Trutch, get in here now. You've got to see this. Trutch's first name, we will eventually learn, is Leon. But only his wife calls him that. Called him that. Trutch shakes his head softly. He draws a, he draws a hand down his tired, handsome, stubbled face as he stands and heads towards Beak's office. Plainly, his wife is part of the past. <laughs> what have we got, boss? Beak nods towards the monitor on her desk. She speaks in a non-specific Cockney accent, which jars implausibly with those who remember her best as the cup-glass Lady Loveless in hit-period drama Loveless Manor. <laughs> she would still be there were she would still be there were it not for a row over an executive producer credit that resulted in her being tragically trampled by a horse. <laughs> <laughs> this has just come in. I warn you, it's not pretty. <laughs> Truck bends over the screen. CCTV footage shows a darkened alleyway where a hooded man is repeatedly thrusting a long knife into the abdomen of a pretty woman. She struggles ecstatically for a while, but soon quiets and stills. A large dolphin motif is plainly visible on the back of the man's hoodie. Beep chews on a nail. You think it's him? Trutch nods. Gotta be. He lifts his dark, mournful eyes to DCI Beak. The dolphin killer is back. <laughs> Wait, what? Max Harmon's eyes close in confusion. The, the what? Greg South looks up from his script. Um... Dolphin Killer. Dolphin? Max Harmon, creator, Max Harmon, creator and writer of Deep Suspect, Cold Justice, and now the breakout hit Trutch, known in the industry as Max the Ripper for the sheer number of women he's been responsible for killing on screen, has been pacing the room. Now he frowns, lays a hand across his forehead. Isn't that a bit... friendly? Well, we workshopped it last week. Greg is a long-time Harmon collaborator and a senior member of the writers' room team that is seated round the table. You know they apparently kill sharks. Wendy Ray nods. They rape other dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> they smother them by blocking up, by blocking up their blowholes. Deanne Wright looks at her neighbour Roy. It's her first day as an intern. <laughs> <laughs> she mouths. Roy shrugs. He's a relative newcomer to the writer's room too, but has already impressed with his freezer killer storyline. No one saw that bolognese twist coming. <laughs> Two, flipper. Max strikes at his script with a pen. Think darker, more dangerous. Manta ray? Wendy's eager to jump in. Stingray! Two puppets! Stay out of the water, people. Think land. Scorpion? Tries Roy. Max clicks his fingers above his head, points towards Roy. Good, great, a sting in the tail. The scorpion killer is back. Trutch is home. He untucks a gun from the small of his back and lays it down on the kitchen table. But he keeps his coat, that coat, on. The flat is grey and appallingly bare. Trutch turns on no lights as he moves towards the fridge. A butter's eye view of his uplit face <laughs> the, buzz, the buzz of the fridge is inside, loud in our ears. Trutch sighs, closes the fridge door again. 
He hasn't knowingly done any shopping since season one. <laughs> and anyway, food doesn't interest him. Not since the past. <laughs> he takes a glass from the counter and fills it with water from the tap, drains it, fills it again, and turns to contemplate the kitchen wall. Photos of victims, torn scraps of newspapers, post-its and pins tied together with wool, and a photo of Trutch, smiling with his wife. If only he could have saved her. His mobile begins to shudder in his pocket. He takes it out, checks the display. Beak. Tell me. Trotch's voice is hoarse, cracked, almost a whisper. He doesn't say hello. There's no time. Not when the scorpion killer is out planning his next attack. What do we know about the victim? Beak is looking haggard on a sofa, clinging to a large glass of wine. There are three of them in this marriage. Beak. Beak's husband, and the jump. Somewhere in the background, the icicle is cooking or emptying the dishwasher. Something domestic. <laughs> Trotch closes his eyes, sighs softly down his nose. Gemma Meadows, 23, single, popular, attractive. Attacked on her way home from work. But what'd she do? Training as a lawyer, real high flyer. A lawyer? This time it's Deanne's voice that cuts through the room. The words slip out before she can help it. Max turns to fix her with a gaze. Yes, Deanne? She colours, begins to fluster. Sorry, it's just... If she was on her way home from work, why was she dressed as a sex worker? <laughs> Max's expression puzzles. He looks around the table for assistance. The writers exchange glances or dip their eyes as the silence builds. Roy clears his throat. <coughs> I think she means, what if she's selling sex to pay her way through law school? <laughs> like they do these days. <laughs> yes, click, point, great thought. Deanne, aspiration. The girl was empowered. Trutch! Trutch and Beak are standing over a new victim. A barely-dressed young woman in her early twenties, blonde a brunette. She's been brutal, brutally, savagely clubbed to death in what is almost certainly a sexually motivated attack. Beak has been speaking, but Trutch is miles away. If only he could have saved her. Beak lean, leans into him urgently. I'm worried about you, Trutch. Since the past, you've got reckless. I don't know if I can trust your methods. Trutch squats down to the body tilts his head to one side to look it gratuitously up and down. Don't think about my methods. He narrows his eyes, allows their focus to drift out into the distance. Think about my results. He stands again, calls back over his shoulder to a group of police extras. CCTV! One of them steps forward, hands him a series of stills which he takes and flicks through blankly. You think it's him? Beak chews on a nail. Trutch nods, his dark, mournful eyes fixed on the images in front of him. Gotta be. They don't make sense. This one was beaten to death sexually, all the others were sexually stabbed. It's a totally different MO. <laughs> exactly. Trutch fixes his beak with a grim stare, his voice growing even more guttural. He's changed the pattern. That's how we know it's him. <laughs> He hands her the photos and taps the top one. 
It's a grainy image, but there's no mistaking the large scorpion motif on the back of the murderer's hoodie. Who found the body? Trutch calls to the extras again. One of them responds, doesn't matter which, ushering a young woman forwards. She's young, in her twenties, pretty, brunette, possibly blonde. <laughs> Trutch studies her carefully, doing the calculations. They're in the opening scene of the second part of a two-part special. He thinks he recognises this woman from Whole Wheel, possibly an advert for cat food or insurance. This is no ordinary extra. She must be connected to the death somehow. And that means her life is in danger. The connection, what's the connection, people? Max is pacing again, beating the script lightly against his thigh. And why does she have to die? Wendy idles her notepad with a pencil. A sexual motivation? <laughs> good, good. Max doesn't break stride. Keep thinking. The room falls into contemplation. Diane leans towards Roy, speaks in a whisper. Why does she have to die? Roy nods. N no, I mean, why does she have to die? Can't she provide crucial information or be rescued at the last minute? Roy winces, indicates Max with his head. It's the rule. If a woman appears in the first scene, she has to be murdered sexually by the third. <laughs> Diane knits her brow. Always. Well, as long as she's attractive. Unless she's a long-term love interest, maybe, or some kind of criminal nemesis. What's that? Max stops, scans the table, selects her with his stare. Diane? Diane swallows, starts to stammer. I, 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 ah, well, I was just... Saying, is it, is it really necessary to kill her? <laughs> okay, Max smiles indulgently. What are you thinking? Well, Diane hesitates. Maybe she could be a long-term love interest. Max is in listening mode now, chin down on his chest, nodding gently. He makes a spooling signal with his finger. Go on. Diane looks to Roy. He steps in. She's saying, what if this woman's actually the killer? And maybe she's not the scorpion killer. She's a, a copycat. And it's all about a uh, grudge against the lawyer. Max's eyes brighten. Greg South nods carefully. Wendy Ray looks nonplussed. What about the sexual motivation? <laughs> All heads turn to Diane. She thinks for a moment. Lesbian? <laughs> yes! Click. Point. Brilliant, Diane. Diane flushes with pride. Max eyes her appraisingly. We'll make a writer of you yet. Trutch, no! Beak's eyes are wild as she arrives on scene. Trutch has the copycat killer cornered. Pinned at gunpoint against the rooftop's edge, armed response extras pour into the periphery. Leave it! She's not worth it! Beak is worried about Trutch's method. She's worried that his results will cost him as bad. Most of all, she's worried that her lines are becoming a bit extenders. <laughs> Do it, Leon. The killer's voice lowers to a pornographic whisper. It actually says pornographic in the script. Her lips linger luxuriously on the words... Finish me off. <laughs> Trutch's finger trembles on the trigger. His soft eyes fill with tears. It's almost as if, as if all of 
the past has been leading to this point. There's so much hurt and hate, darkness and desire, so many inconsistent motivations. <laughs> I thought we had something special. I thought you were different. The copycat killer is a lesbian, of course. But fortunately, one of those lesbians who are sexually attracted to men who find lesbians sexually attractive. <laughs> but you're nothing but a soulless killer. Just like all the rest. The killer's mouth curls into a one-sided smile. Just your type. As she says it, she allows her body to tip back, fall away over the edge. Trutch leaps forward, but too late. We glimpse her expression in freefall. She looks quietly confident. <laughs> the audiences love her. Her agent's already begun negotiating the next series, and a day's selling pet insurance are surely behind her. They'll have to write her way out of this somehow. Up on the rooftop, Trutch pounds a palm on the concrete with a guttural roar, spittle magnificently decorating his chin and lip. Is there a finer spit actor working on television today? <laughs> and his face too carries a hint of self-congratulation. This season's in the can, the next is in the bag. Fuck Wolf Hall. With Deanne on board, he could be just six strong, sexually motivated storylines away from Bond. <laughs> comes down. The actors take a final bow, and the writers bask in reflected glory as the audience mills around uncertain whether to depart for home or stay and drink and chat and relive the wonderful, strange affair they have just seen play out on stage. You know what my vote would be for. Good night. Good night.